0: Behold, the universe. Incredibly complex, yet wonderfully simple. It encompasses all creation while racing towards its ultimate end. Within this maelstrom of growth and destruction blaze millions of galaxies, billions of stars and planets. This sector of the universe alone is home to uncountable civilizations. Sentient life, so varied, that no one race would ever have been able to imagine the others. Throughout the ages, these civilizations have encountered each other time and time again, and have mingled their cultures and beliefs. Two societies, however, the Queen, a race so old that it is the basic stock from which developed all others, and the scrub, avaricious upstarts who live only to serve their hive mother, have dedicated themselves to the subjugation of all others. For countless eons, they have battled each other for supremacy, with neither side able to gain a definitive advantage. Now a new power has entered this sector. A power so great that it makes everything else in the universe pale. Galactus, an immutable force as old as time. Galactus possesses incalculable knowledge and strength. Like a shark gliding through an intergalactic sea, Galactus uses his knowledge for only one thing—to find planets whose cores contain the nutrients that will enable him to survive. So great are his needs that he cares naught for any consequence save his own nourishment. And after he is fed, sharp is all Galactus can do. Let's move on. I am the watcher. It is my task to note all events of significance in this part of the cosmos. Only to note them and never interfere. Okay out there in Marvelland, face front, this is Stan Lee speaking.
1: Hey, who made you a disc jockey, lady?
0: Well, well, Jolly Jack Kirby. By the way, Jack, the readers have been complaining about Sue's hairdo again.
1: What am I supposed to do? Be a hairdresser? Next time I'll draw her bald-headed.
2: Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Bullpen Bulletin's Podcast. A celebration of all things Marvel. I'm Vince B. I'm David Price. And tonight we have a guest in the mobile Bullpen Bulletin's recording van. We got the mighty, mighty Braxton with us. The one and only Braxton Harrison.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Artist
2: supreme and untrained and that's why I hate him. Whatever. Yeah, so... (laughs) It's our very last podcast before the New York City Comic Con. So next time you hear from us, we're going to have a lot, a lot of material from New York. But before we do that...
4: And we won't have that sponsorship message.
2: Yeah. Well, I kind of like that. You sound really good on that thing.
4: Towards the end, yeah.
2: it sounds like the, the old days with the, the, uh, the telegraph greetings from New York. It's David Price. <laughs> 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 yeah, it sounds good. I love it. But before we do that, we have an interview with Mr. Alexander Irvine, Ooh. writer of Hellstorm for the Marvel Max imprint. Now, uh, I don't know if you guys read them, but I read all four issues to date, and that book is swizzy. It is so good. So let's hear from Mr. Irvine, and then we'll be back. To talk about Wolverine number 50. Enjoy. So don't go anywhere. In addition to being a professor of English at the University of Maine and a well-respected and popular novelist, he's the writer of Hellstorm for Marvel's Max Imprint, one of the most well-crafted, compelling, and downright disturbing miniseries the House of Ideas has published in quite some time. Please welcome Alexander Irvine. Hello. Pleasure to have you here.
5: Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: I was a bit worried when I read the title of your series initially in the Marvel Solicits as as Hellstorm. I thought, uh, in light of the title of the series, that it was going to be a complete overhaul of the Damon Hellstrom character. But after reading all the issues to date, however, as a longtime fan of the character, I was very pleased to learn that this is the same son of Satan that first appeared during Marvel's Bronze Age, albeit with a few tweaks. Uh, have you read the original stories and was it a conscious effort on your part to create a tale faithful to the original character
5: well there is the, there are sort of two sides to that coin I, I mean I had uh, looked at some of the comics but I had not been a, a regular reader of the series and its original incarnations um, so when I started talking to Axel about doing this I went back and looked and at the, at the previous book and then I started uh, thinking about ways that I could do something that would feel true to the original spirit of the character, but also sort of move it in directions that were more interesting to me as a storyteller. So I guess i tried to eat, I think, have it character-wise. Uh,
2: he's driven by the same motivations as the original character. Uh, his overpowering desire to exterminate evil and his need to appease his father. Uh, the only difference that I could see is the lack of costume. Uh was it your decision to eschew the superhero side of the character in favor of a more let's say contemporary take on, on the character?
5: Well, I was I it wasn't on me to make the ultimate decision, I don't think, but I was certainly behind the decision. Uh I, I talked about it with Axel and and uh and we went uh back and forth and also Russ Braun. Um and in the end I just felt like the story that I wanted to tell would not have been as well served by, uh, a caped and tattooed and permanently tridented Damon as it would if he was, uh, just an ordinary looking guy. And because the, the the part of the character that always, that really interests me is the aspect of him that is kind of suspended between, on the one hand, his, of uh, satanic Patrimony or demonic patrimony, anyway. And the fact that he lives in the everyday world, he's a human mother, and, and, uh, and has to make his way in our world, but he's never completely part of either one, and so he's constantly making uh, these choices about how he's going to navigate in between them. And I felt like that would work better if he didn't stand out on the street uh, by virtue of having a chariot and a trident and stuff.
2: No netheranium, no chariot. <laughs>
5: yeah, and a uh, netheranium, the uh, I. I think, I mean, he needed it at some point, and so I thought it would, um, the way I decided to handle it was just to have him be able to sort of summon it at will, and, or not completely at will, it does take something out of him, but it's not, it's, uh, the, the way he can occasionally summon, um, you know, a flying, or a moment of flight, or, or things like that. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a sort of tapping into the otherworldly part of his heritage. Uh, that he can't do constantly, but uh, in in moments of need, he's able to draw on that.
2: I thought it was very neat in the one sequence where he skewers the demon with the trident and just turns his back and walks away, which led me to assume that the trident would somehow rebond or merge with him in some way.
5: Yeah, yeah, that was the idea, and I actually tried to cue that up there, so uh, I'm, I'm glad that worked. Thanks.
2: While reading the first issue, I got the impression that you were subtly speaking through the character of Hellstrom in relation to his opinions on the government's reaction and response to the hurricane and the treatment of the people of New Orleans. Uh, do his opinions mirror your own as far as that is concerned? Well, I think
5: that there is more than enough blame to go around from the way the response to Katrina was handled. And so you know everybody wants to point fingers, and it's it's obvious that the Fed did a terrible job, um, and it's also obvious that the people whose job it was to have an evacuation plan in place for New Orleans didn't do a very good job of that. So you know, that, I mean, that's that almost doesn't need saying. But the but the reason that some of that stuff is in the book is that I really wanted to uh, I wanted to sort of explore the idea that. When people are despairing and feeling abandoned, um, that's a sort of opening for all sorts of, you know, bad feelings that are literalized in the book as demons, uh, to creep in. And so that it's, I was a little bit hesitant about setting the book in New Orleans because I didn't want it to feel exploitative, but, um, in the end, I think it worked out okay. Well, I was trying to, you know, be respectful of the event. And of the people, but at the same time, kind of um, explore what uh, what kind of stories that something like that uh, can give rise to. Because I mean, you know, once it happened, it's history. It doesn't belong to anybody anymore. So I wanted to I wanted to turn it over and examine it a
2: little bit. It, it adds an amazing emotional essence to the book, and I, I don't think it's exploited in any way. And it has been theorized that say the emotional energies is released by the death and destruction on a massive scale, and in this case Katrina, and one could add the negligence, so to speak, of the uh, rescue efforts, that this would create, say, a sphere of negative energy allowing these forces easier access to the area and you use this as a hook uh, for the Helstrom series. Is this something in which you believe that emotional energies could cause something like that?
5: No, I, I... I'm, a, I'm more of a rationalist than that, I think. Um I'm not entirely unsympathetic to the idea that there are, you know, capabilities of the human mind that we don't know about. But I don't think that, uh, that there's any sort of spiritual ether or something that can actually be disturbed by stuff like this. What I do think is that this kind of story, you know, in addition to being fun because it's got monsters in it is a way to talk about how human beings grapple with, uh, with these kinds of feelings of, of uh, abandonment and betrayal because they do predispose you to bad behavior because, you know, you have all these negative feelings inside you and, you and you start to want to displace them on somebody else. That's something the demon occasionally does. Like, he's prone to these fits of rage. He wants to talk to one of the demons and he accidentally kills him Well, you know, that's uh, that's because he's he's got a lot of bad feelings. So it works on a micro and a macro
2: scale, I think. For those who haven't tried the series, let's try and recap the events of the first issue because I think the setup is brilliant. And it was one of the more captivating first issues I've read in quite a long time. The, The events of the story just totally pulled me in, and I had to know what was going to happen next. Now, you use Louisiana as the backdrop, and... Katrina has weakened the boundary between our dimension and hell, allowing the demons to roam free in New Orleans. And Hellstrom meets Dr. Peterson, who Mm -hmm. tells him this tale of this woman who gave birth to a child who seemed to grow at an unnatural rate. And you eventually weave the legend of Osiris and his brother Set into it. Can you talk a little bit about that?
5: Yeah. um, This was... There are a lot of versions of this story, and um so I sort of picked the one that I thought fit what I wanted to do best. But the, the, uh, I guess kind of the Reader's Digest version is that you have Isis and Osiris who are, uh, brother and sister but also married. And, uh, Set, uh, um, has a thing for Isis and so he's got to figure out some way to get Osiris out of the way. And, so he uh, he does this. He he kills him. He, he seals him up in a, in a uh, sarcophagus made out of lead and, and sinks him in the Nile. And then he uh, and then he comes after Isis. Well, th- then uh, Isis goes and she starts looking for the body, and she finds it. And then she uh, because Isis is a wonderful uh, sorceress in addition to all kinds of other things, she's able to conceive a child with Osiris even after he's already dead. And so Set doesn't know this has happened. He just knows that Isis has been looking for the body. So he goes and he takes the body again and he throws Isis in a prison and then he chops Osiris's body into pieces and throws them into the Nile. And while Isis is in jail, she gives birth to her son Horus, And then... Uh, They get out, and Horus and Isis' uh, battle with Set, and then uh, Set is defeated, and Isis spends the rest of time, basically, looking for Osiris. And she uh, finds various pieces of him at various times, but she can never find all of them. That's the long and the short of it. There's also a trial in the underworld at which Anubis and Loth uh, take Osiris' part and all this other stuff.
2: I thought the way that you mirrored Egypt and new orleans it was a seamless merging of the two especially in in the retelling of the osiris and set saga where you uh, use the part where the people of egypt because the gods are fighting they're left to fend for themselves in this time Mm. of great calamity and that that perfectly matches what happened in new orleans so yeah
5: and and I, I was kind of surprised by that, actually, because I had originally thought that boilings well, was just because of Katrina, and then I got thinking about, well, you know, hey, it is in this big river delta, it's one of the great rivers of the world, and, you know, prone to floods, and so is, uh, well, modern day Cairo, but, um, and, uh, and then I, when I started reading, uh, some of the stories surrounding the ISIS and Osiris myths, um, there was all this stuff about civil war and and the people of Egypt being abandoned in their need by the people who should have been watching out for them and taking care of them. And, and the parallel was just too obvious not to draw. Right. Um, so, I, you know, again, that's, it's, I, I hope the, the book isn't too heavy-handed with its, with its social commentary. Um, it, it, was, it was right there. I couldn't pass it up.
2: You even took it one step further with the introduction of Apep, the Egyptian god who mm. is associated with hurricanes. So you have the the Egypt new orleans connection again with the, his ability to summon hurricanes it's it, it's just brilliant
5: oh thanks yeah i was kind of surprised that the egyptians had a guy who had anything to do with hurricanes <laughs> because they really got them there but once i found that out i thought well this is terrific i gotta use that and uh and plus apep is you know this crocodile who's kind of scary
2: right and and crocodiles are native to the area so it's just perfect
5: yeah, yeah it was pretty exciting to put to uh, put all that together i had a good time with it
1: this episode of Bullpen Boltons is sponsored by the second annual New York Comic Con. New York Comic Con is bigger, better, and has doubled the space with more gaming and anime for 2007. Come to the Jacob Javits Center February 23rd to the 25th and experience the biggest pop culture event in New York City featuring comics, anime, manga, graphic novels, video games, trading card games, RPG, MMOs, toys, movies, TV, celebrities, and more. Guests of honor include Stan Lee, Jeff Smith, J. Michael Straczynski, and George Perez. With many more to be announced. For a complete list of guests as well as show information, visit www.nycomiccon.com. Buy your tickets online now to ensure you're a spot for the 2007 show. Tickets are available now at a discounted rate for advanced purchases at www.nycomiccon.com. You can also book your travel arrangements online now on the travel page of the website. Don't miss out on the 2007 New York Comic Con. Visit our website to get all the information you need.
2: I really appreciate the way you temper the, let's be honest, the downright disturbing events of the book with sardonic humor. Hellstrom's wordplay, particularly in the third issue, with the old, I'm not the only one who ever went to Noreen's looking for cock, and it's just, yeah. and, and the devilish ringtones of his cell phone. Is the, is the humor a product of your personality, or did you feel it was necessary to balance the scale, so to speak?
5: Well I think the truth is that from the right perspective everything is funny. And if you've ever been to a funeral, you know that people laugh there. They also cry, but they laugh too. And so one of ooh, that's that's one thing. I I think that uh, you can tell a story about the, the darkest and gloomiest and most horrible things and you can actually make it have a lot more emotional impact. It's just into the world of humor. And <laughs> the other thing is that this is part of the sort of the tradition of the noir loner, you know, who's always kind of wisecracking about the society around him and about himself and, um, and, you know, these these subtle comments about, uh, um, about how his quest and about how it's doomed to fail. And, and, and I, and I really wanted to, um, I really wanted to infuse the book with some, with some of that attitude, uh, of the, of the uh, the man trying to be better than his surroundings and, and the surroundings not really wanting to permit that because that's part of what is happening to But And and plus, I mean, who can pass up a dick joke? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I need...
2: This is true. Yeah. And and you take full advantage of the Max Imprints Mature Reader's Advisory, but the violence in the foul language never seemed forced or inserted merely because you could get away with it. They always seem appropriate to the character of the scene.
5: Yeah, I'm, I. You always worry about being well. I, I, maybe everybody doesn't, but I do about getting gratuitous. Saying I'm. I'm really not a big fan of of uh, of gratuitous violence, uh, because I think that the portrayal of violence is one of those fine lines that uh, an artist, by which I mean any sort of creative person, has to walk. There's. You have to be really careful that you're not, sort of, that you don't start kind of valorizing what you're just trying to depict. And the fact is that if you're going to go and kill demons, it's going to be messy. And if demons are going to eat somebody, then, you know, that's that's going to be horrible and messy, too. But the, but I, I wanted to be careful that the book can come across as kind of glorying in the violence. I mean, and uh now, I don't want to sound like a prude, although maybe I already have, because I like a good shoot 'em up or monster movie as much as the next guy. Um, but... It's it's something that I was conscious of. I wanted what violence there was to was going to be in the story. I wanted it to be kind of organic to the story and not there just for its own sake. Although I couldn't resist putting the guy's head on the horn of a demon. I just couldn't. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it worked very well. Very disturbing and you know, totally appropriate. These are demons, after all. They wouldn't just kill the person and walk away from them. They'd defile the body.
5: Yeah, and they're playful, too. I mean, they're having a great time with all of this. I was going to have... Uh, I, I had imagined, um, you know, there was going. If I'd had more room in a couple of the stories, that I were going to be playing, uh, like football, in somebody's <laughs> head, and you know, have the feet set up as goalposts or whatever, and all this kind of stuff. But then I started to think, well, you know, maybe that's edging forward the gratuitous. I, I don't know, and so, and uh, and then I went in another direction
2: anyway because I found something I liked better. And you mentioned the the noirish feel of the book and I, th- I definitely think Hellstrom's monologue gives it a, a very dark, very loner ish type feel. And and this was intentional at the at the outset of the book.
5: Absolutely, yeah. I, I he is a loner. I mean he's alone in every way he can possibly be alone. You know, I mean it, there's there's a very fundamental kind of psychological aloneness that comes from not having your parents. And you know, his dad's never been around in any like, meaningful dad kind of way. And his mother is dead. And he doesn't have any meaningful relationships in the world. And he's also kind of grappling with this impulse he has to do good, but also to appease his father, which are, you know, diametrically opposed impulses. And so he doesn't know what he's going to do with himself. And so I figured that the sort of template of the noir was, was, was going to be an interesting way to explore... This uh this both loneliness and solitude, you know, and where it would lead. And there's often you know, the the noir narrator and all the you know, the great books, the uh your Hammett and Chandler and Chester Hines and and and, Williford and and Thompson and everybody else. Um there's often this running uh commentary and monologue. And so I I wanted to take the chance to uh do one of those myself, too.
2: It works very well. If the stunning events of the first issue weren't enough to hook me, and they were, but uh, your profound dialogue in issue two did the trick, especially in the scene when Damon confronts Isis in the church Mm -hmm. and he says, the God who dies is a hallmark card. We mail it to ourselves and fill in whatever return address we can think of, but it doesn't stop either of us, any of us, from believing. That just floored me. Great, And I especially like the way you tie in the fact that Horus, the dying God, with Christ. Mm-hmm. It's a little off-putting being raised as a Catholic and uh, very disconcerting, but it totally applies to the situation.
5: Yeah, well, there's, I mean, and as the book goes on, you know, there's there's other examples of the God who dies, too. There's Adonis and Tammuz and... um and you know Osiris and christ and and there's there's a sort of commonality balder um, to all of these myths and so it it, it struck me that uh, that Damon w- was somebody who would have thought about this stuff and would have taken up this question of belief, you know because he's somebody who knows stuff that a lot of people don't know and um, and so what does he believe in? You know, and and how does he maintain a belief in things? And so and then I think, you know, why do we believe things? You know, right. why do we why have there been so many cultures who believe in this in this God who was sort of unjustly persecuted just for being better than everybody else and, and someday is gonna come back? Um, and if you have believed that and then you stop believing in it, you know, that's a pretty profound shake up in, in your worldview and and, and where do you go with it? Um so I wanted to uh I wanted to dig around in that and also it would have been a you know a big uh, uh bucket of cold water in Isis's face to uh to have it pointed out that Osiris isn't the only one, you know, that there's that that uh, this has happened again and again and again and she's and her story is not just hers. Right. So which is something that uh that I touch on again in the fifth issue.
2: And you hammer this home with the line, Who controls the resurrection controls the God. Mm-hmm. And uh she seemed generally shocked to yeah. re- to realize that uh, her husband wasn't as unique as she thought he was.
5: Yeah, and well, we all want to walk around thinking that our stories are absolutely you know unique because they are stories, and in a way they are. But there's also you know these patterns that recur over and over and over again, and everybody has you know similar problems, and everybody has similar desires. We all want to be loved. We all want to um, you know go to eat and be warm things like that and so sure we're individuals but they're but um we're also you know as we live we're sort of retelling our the stories that have been told over and over and over again and and so our gods do the same thing
2: now something in hellstrom number 3 where mm-hmm. damon is once again referred to as jack spratt by one one yeah. of his, by one of his father's minions is i saw this as a reference not to the traditional nursery rhyme but a reference to King Charles I. Oh really? Where he declared war on Spain, but he couldn't hmm. get couldn't get anybody to back him. And in essence where Damon is declaring war on his father's ideals, I guess, and mm-hmm. he 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 he's in it alone. He doesn't have any help.
5: Yeah. Um well, I tell you what, I wish I could take credit for that, but the truth is that um the I was just tinkering around with the demon's dialogue, and I had him called Day- Damon Jack Spratt. And, or, originally, it was just Spratt, I think, when I, I went to Jack Spratt. And I just kind of liked the way it sounded. It was sort of whimsical and and, and kind of crazy the way it, I, I thought this particular demon might be, so I kept it. But um, <laughs> now I wish I'd layered in something else about Charles the first, because then I would have seemed like I was really smart. Huh. I was told, see, I just did this all wrong. Because I was told uh, at one of the first writing workshops I ever went to that when somebody noticed something and something I wrote that I hadn't meant to put there, that what I was supposed to say was, you know, not many people notice that. <laughs> but uh, but I couldn't do that right then because I, I was too surprised myself.
2: I, well, I, I have to really read up. I, I admire your honesty. And and then uh, in Hellstorm number four, I was very pleased to find that you alluded to Hellstrom's days in the Defenders. With Patsy Walker and Hellcat, it's a neat little link to the to the Marvel Bronze Age.
5: Yeah, well, I wanted to I wanted to nod to all that stuff. I mean, I, the the story's obviously not directly in continuity with uh, the the more recent Hellstorm stuff, and and that was on purpose. Um, but I did want to sort of tip my hat to the people who had worked with Damon before I came along, and I didn't want to do a ton of it. Um, there's a mention of. Uh, there's a mention of Entangling with the nudist somewhere, I think too. Um, but it, it was important to me to just uh, sort of let the reader know that I, that I was aware of the tradition, you know, and that uh, that I, I wanted to be respectful of it, even though at times the book uh, totally departs from it. So that was that's that's why I, I, I sort of threw those things in there.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the scenes that threw me initially, and I had to read it a, a couple times, uh, and I'd li- I'd love to hear your take on it, was the scene where Anubis and Toth uh, judge Hellstrom, and on the scale is his quest, and on the other side is his heart, and it's found to be out of sync, out of balance. I- is this because of his father's influence?
5: Well, it's because he's between, right? He's between everything. He's between human and demon, and uh, he's between our world and Down Under, and even the scales, you know, can't quite figure out what he's going to do. And so the... Well, <laughs> um, what I was just going to say would have sort of given away a bunch of stuff that happened in number five. Um, but the the idea is that how to phrase this um that damon doesn't even know 100 percent what he's going to do at that point because he's got so many things to work out and then when he makes his decision at the end of number four um that's a culmination of a whole bunch of different processes and that aren't complete yet when he goes down to the hall of judgment and is judged um, Satan thinks one thing is happening, and thinks another thing is happening and, and the scales have their own opinion on the topic and and then uh and and then Amatu uh makes the final decision. So the idea was that nobody, even even uh these beings who can possibly see the future know what Damon is gonna do because he's so much uh so in between everything.
2: Mm-hmm. He's the wild card.
5: Uh, yeah, absolutely a wild card, and he doesn't even know what's going to happen.
2: Interesting. He's working
5: on it. He's working on it, but uh, <laughs> but he hasn't got it figured out to his own satisfaction. Then, and so more more of uh, the process that's at work there is explained in number five.
2: Another nod to the past, the Bronze Era, was is that we never actually see Satan's full features, and that was that was something that they were very specific about in the past. You, you never got. Uh, you never got to see Satan's face, which adds this level of of mystery to him, and uh, I, I was very pleased that that was continued in this series.
5: Yeah, I really wanted to do that because, you know, once you Satan becomes a caricature of his, of himself, once you can just look at him, and part of the whole scary bit about uh, about Satan, I guess, is that uh, that he could be anything, and and so to depict him in full um kind of diminishes that a little bit. And so yeah, I really wanted to avoid it and do as many sort of uh partial faces and and shots from the back and things like that as as were possible without it totally seeming like a gimmick and I and uh thanks to Russ and, and, and Klaus and Julia but uh I think it worked out pretty well.
2: And uh I have to say Satan has one heck of a cell phone plan.
5: Yeah, well <laughs> I think uh He's probably got a piece of a company somewhere.
2: <laughs> I, it's it's very funny to have Damon in this otherworldly realm, and, and his father can actually contact him by cell phone. Yeah. It, it, the humor in this book is, is really funny and, and I think very needed, in especially with the, uh, the very, let's say, disturbing events that are going on. It, it, it's a nice balance, very, very nice.
5: Excellent. Yeah, I'm glad you feel that way because... Uh yeah, I wanted it to be, yeah, I didn't want it to be all doom and gloom, but I didn't want it to be slapstick either. Right. Um, but uh, the cell phone ringtones I, were something that I just I couldn't help myself. Uh, once I, I was originally going to be just one, and then I thought of all these devil songs. And so I, oh, I got to use all of
2: them. I love so, the guys like, in the restaurant when sympathy for the devil comes on. Mm-hmm. They're they're like flashing the devil sign. That is very funny.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now, was that something that was indicated by yourself, or did the artistic team add that?
5: actually, I had some sort of note, and now I'm going to forget about what those guys were doing in the background there. I had them in the script and but then i I think it was Russ who actually came up with them flashing the double sign so which just goes to show you that uh it's it's good to have an artist that you're in tune with when when cause this is my first time I've written a comic book and and so it was terrific to work with the people I did because uh they I think we're I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been in the script. They really picked it up and ran with it. And so that uh, they, had, they helped me out a lot. They they asked all the right questions and, and when you know, they tried to let me know when they needed something presented a little differently so they could understand what I was looking for and it was just a terrific process all the way through.
2: It's it's a total collaborative effort. And yeah. you were blessed with a fantastic creative team on this series. And for those who don't know, Penciler Russ Braun Inker Klaus Jansen, who's probably the best in the business, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Colorist Julia Brusco, Letter of Joe Caramanga, and drop dead gorgeous covers by Arthur Soydam and uh Mark Texiera. D- do you feel that the visuals <laughs> did justice to your narrative and ideas?
5: Yeah, I mean, i it, there's the thing was that I, I went back and forth because, like I said, I've never done this before. It's a real steep learning curve for me. Um, trying to figure out how I should present things and how granular I should get my art direction and stuff like that. And even as the scripts went along, um, after the first one, and I started to see the pages coming in, I realized that I didn't really have to do that to the extent that I thought I was going to have to, because, um, if I just got the atmosphere and the impressions right, then, you know, the, the rest of the team was going to pick it up and run with it. And, uh, and, you know, like Rusty with the with the Satan uh, Times and stuff like that, was going to fill in the gaps that uh, that I had inadvertently left. So um, they were great. And, you know, I feel like I got really lucky just
2: uh, beginning to end. It works very well, especially the um, update of the character's pentagram where you have it, his tattoos morph in relation to the events around him. And I thought that was brilliant. And I use that word a lot in relation to this series, because I I think it's just a, a very unique, very uh, captivating take on the character.
5: Oh, thanks very much. I, uh, I unfortunately did not have that tattoo idea until I started writing, I want to say the third issue. And then I got mad because, um, the, the other ones were already sort of in process, and I couldn't go back and, and, and layer it in. But yeah, once I had that idea, I thought, well, this is great. It, because there was we went, we went round and round and round and round and round about the pentagram. Um, I really didn't like it. And, you know, then there's the whole question of tradition and respect for the tradition and everything. And so I thought, okay, well, he needs tattoos, and, and what would his tattoos be? And so... Initially I decided he was gonna have this uh full spread across his back of expulsion of oh. from the Garden of Eden. And um then uh then well yeah, wonder well, why wouldn't the dead dude to it wouldn't change? I mean he's magic. He, he can do this, And so then the dead has become another way to uh to uh tell a little gaps story or uh, or comment on, on things that are happening on the main page and boy, well, I wish I thought of them earlier.
2: <laughs> but and, and this is a series that works in a, in a lot of different genres uh, we mentioned that it works as a, a sort of noirish detective story, it works very well as a, as a straight flat out horror tale uh, but it, it's also in a lot of ways the story of fathers and sons
6: yeah.
2: uh, y- you have Hellstrom and his father and you have Osiris and his son so it's a it's a neat little interplay with that, that dynamic.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, this this is something that interests me. You know, I have kids, and I have a dad. And uh, so being both a father and a son, I'm sort of interested in fathers and sons. And the the whole idea, when Axel and I first started talking about the son of Satan, I was like, well, what would it be like to be the son of Satan? You know, you would feel, just uh, every kid sort of wants to be like a little man. But at the same time, uh when you want to rebel and break away, and then that process is sort of further complicated when your old man is the Prince of Lies, right? So um that that was all something that this that this would let me sort of explore some and which is another reason that I really wanted to do it. Um and I think too often the people think that a story has to be either completely plot-driven or it's got to be completely sort of navel-casing and literary and psychological and i don't believe that at all i think that that you can do all those things in a single story and uh but i try to you know varying degrees of success
2: and it's working out very well i can't wait till the fifth issue
5: well, you won't have to wait for too long
2: it's coming out next week correct
5: yeah excellent that's the last i heard anyway so yeah
2: That's my son. Sorry. (laughs) 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 Very poignant. Now, you have another Marvel Universe book on the horizon, uh, Against All Enemies, featuring the the Ultimates. That's going to come out at the tail end of August, correct? Yeah, it looks that way. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
5: Well, it's a novel, um, by which I mean prose novel, not graphic novel. And um, it just sort of, it kind of fell into my lap. Um, The... I, apparently, you know, Marvel had decided to license out some, some, uh, prose novels about, about their characters and, and, uh, Senator Simon & Schuster, uh, Jen Heddle called me up and asked me if I wanted to do one. She offered me some choices about who and I, and I saw the Ultimates and I thought, wow, yeah, well that would be fun. Um, so, it's a story that involves the Chitari and it is sort of, extra continuity. It doesn't actually violate anything that happens in the main thrust of the story, but it takes place in a sort of eddy outside the flow of events that are seen um, in the issues that are already out. Um not sure uh, how much more we're really supposed to say about it. Right. But, uh,
2: and how could yeah. you pass up a chance to play around with the whole Marvel pantheon of heroes?
5: I always liked all those guys and 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 then um when the Ultimates came along I thought it was a real interesting interesting take um and so that was the one that that I thought also had the most room to work because some of the other characters that they were doing this with had long histories and established histories and and I thought well there's not really um any room to dig around in these characters or I wasn't sure if there was and uh, but the Ultimates yeah um I mean who doesn't want to write about Captain America and Iron Man? Come
2: on. All right. So, do you have any other novels in the works that our listeners should be aware of? It doesn't necessarily have to be any, any way near related to Marvel books, but we, we do have, I'm sure, Marvel fans are very interested in fantasy and science fiction.
5: My most recent novel came out in the fall of five It's called The Narrows, and uh, it takes place during 1943 um, in Detroit. And it's about a guy who works in a, in a sort of secret factory on uh in one of the back corners of the Fort River Rouge plant, which built tank parts and all kinds of other stuff during the war. Um, and he is building golems. And so there's this rabbi there who animates the golems after they're molded out of the clay. And, of course, there's Nazi spies sneaking around trying to uh, get rid of the rabbi because the golems are causing all kinds of problems over in Europe. And then there are these sort of parallel conspiracies where the nazis are trying to raise creatures from their own mythology and there's this uh office of esoteric investigation in the u.s that's also trying to dig up other mythologies that are indigenous to the u.s or north america and put those to work in war and caught in the middle is this poor schmo who uh who just uh who works on the factory lines and it's it's uh Apart from the, the monsters and everything, which which is why I'm in this business really. Um it's a book about uh sort of the home front during the war, you know, and how did, how do you feel that you're you're contributing to this grand enterprise when you can't go fight. Um and you really want to go fight. But circumstances don't permit it, so what do you do and how do you feel about it? So yeah, there's golems and uh, cross giants and and talking birds and um and then a big a big slam bang surprise ending.
2: It sounds amazing. I think the Hellstorm series has worked its magic, so to speak, because before encountering your work on this series, uh, I've I've never read anything by you in the past. But that will change, uh, well, because I I find your work very refreshing in its in its uh, inventiveness, and I I want to read more.
5: Well, thanks. I, I uh, hope you let me know when you do.
2: Well, thank you very much for being here.
5: Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
2: There you go. Alexander Irvine.
3: Cool. What a great creator. I like that guy.
2: Yeah, very smart man. Lots to say. And uh like I said before, pick up that title because it is very well written, very surprising. There's a lot of neat symbolism going on and a lot of very uh dangerous undertones in that book. It's it's really good. I I can't I can't praise it enough. Excellent book. Right. So we are gathered here today it sounds like a funeral, doesn't
3: it? I a wedding, or a wedding, We
2: are gathered here today to examine Wolverine number 50, Jeff Loeb's 50. triumphant return to the Marvel Universe after slumming it down the street for a couple of years. The book was written by Jeff Loeb, pencils by the awesome Simone Bianchi, ink and washed halftones by Bianchi and Andrea Silvestri, who I'm led to believe works in the same studio with Bianchi. Colors by Paul Mounts, and if you look pretty closely, the cover was colored by Mr. Maury Hollowell.
4: Yes, indeed. No,
2: Yeah, no stranger to the bullpen bulletins uh, deal here. And uh, I've said a lot about Maury, and I'll probably say more. So, watch your head, Maury. And Letters by Comicraft.
3: Very good letters. I I noticed that as I was reading right off the bat, it was kind of bony looking. You know, it's definitely different from the norm.
4: Yeah, yeah, very, very, very like jagged, yeah, rigid, rigid ends, endings to, or, or lines rather.
2: Yeah, almost in italics, as if uh, Wolverine. I guess it matches the anecdotal it, it, nature it, of it, the. It,
4: it feels kind of guttural, like you know, he would he would kind of growl these, and same thing with Creed.
2: Yeah.
3: Kinda like he's scratching it out.
4: Exactly. Yeah. So I cool. gotta
3: ask though, what explain ink and washed half tones? I mean, what is the what is the process? Or what is what is that exactly?
4: You see where um
3: and you could look at the art and see right off the bat that it's something different from, you know, just solid inks.
2: Right. A wash is exactly what it sounds like. It's using ink in a watercolor medium. That's basically it. To give the uh figures a little bit more definition. Right? Cuz
3: I would have looking at it I would have said, "Oh, it... It's colored with uh, watercolors somehow here? Yeah, well,
2: and you'd be right because, it, yeah. but it's just monochromatic watercolors. It's just using uh, black ink. That's it.
3: Well, it looks good.
2: Yeah, it looks amazing. For those who haven't read the issue, let's uh, go a little bit step by step and break it down. That sound like a good idea.
4: It does, yeah. Can, do uh, can 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 I pick a bone about the cover?
2: You can. You can try.
4: Okay.
2: Can I
3: guess? Can I guess what the bone's gonna be? Go ahead, guess. The tennis shoes.
4: No, the tennis shoes don't bother me because they, even on 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 Creed, they look a little bit more like tennis shoes. On Wolverine, I can understand how it might look that way with the tread.
7: Yeah. But
4: in inside the book, you do see that they're attached to the boot. You know, it's a boot. It's not. They're not tennis shoes, no matter what. Well, Stephen, I'm
3: not. am not a sp- fanboy. Says. Yeah, I'm not speaking from from Wolverine. I can tell those are are boots, but creed, creed he yeah. has got creed. some some British yeah, he's, knights, man, word, he's kicking.
4: Yeah. Yes, man, he's got to be comfortable. He's a big guy, you know. My my bone is not with the tennis shoes. My bone is with the fact that we have two different pencillers on the book, and two different anchors, and the only uh, the only creators credited on the title on the above the title are the writer and the two pencillers because this does have a backup story. So that's my bone. And that, no love to the anchors. That's, yeah, that's all I'm saying.
2: That's a running theme. And you you have a little bit of... Uh, your, your argument has some flooring underneath it because I think they could have put two more names on there. But then if they put two more names in, what about Paul Mounts? The guy did a fantastic job on this. Yeah, you, know? out of
4: all, you see a lot of... Color, you see Ponzer, Justin Ponzer's name. on. Um, you see it on Ultimate Vision. You see it on Ultimate Fantastic Four. You see a lot of colorist names on the covers of comic books lately and uh, even from Marvel. And I have yet to see Paul Mounts even on Beyond, I saw I saw McDuffie and Collins. I don't I don't recall seeing Mounts. Did anybody see Mounts' name on the cover of Beyond?
2: No not me. No, I don't think so.
4: So I mean Mounts gets like no love regardless of what comic he's working on. But you're right, you know, you can't you know if you wanted to fit the colorist on there as well. I'm not gonna say no. But I mean, you know, it's this this comic just wasn't penciled. Right. That's I would, all I'm saying.
2: I would rather that they put no creators on the cover at all.
4: Oh, just like old days. Yes,
2: because if you're going to favor the writer and the penciler, somebody's going to get the feelings hurt. So why don't you just leave it off? I mean, the credit. Well,
3: the big argument on that would be the draw factor for the creators. You know, that's right. kind of a selling point, especially Loeb.
2: Right. It's a tough call. Um, I don't know. I, I I would like to see either all of them or none of them. But then again, when you th- when you think about the real estate of the cover, there's not all that much space to devote to the to the creators when you're yeah. you're working with an image. It's a tough call.
3: You're
4: right. You're right. And 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 you know, I don't mean to detract or derail. Yes,
3: you do, David. You totally <laughs> well, did.
4: I might. I might. <laughs> <laughs> But in this case, we 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 can get into the we can get into the meat of the issue.
2: So take it away.
3: I think I, uh, I think he's got a good point, though. Now that you think about it,
2: David has a good point. You think? Yeah, I yeah. think he does. I guess so. Everyone, it, should, is,
4: it is Monday. It's the end of February. I was it was bound to happen at least once this
2: month. Every good boy deserves favor, and if they do good work, they should be credited for it. Mm, yeah, you're right. They should be on the cover regarding the anchor for the backup story
4: he's been doing some phenomenal work even even not on ed but he's doing some fantastic work on a little title called civil war
2: yeah dexter vines can't beat dexter when it comes to the black stuff but otherwise the cover i think is really really dynamic and it's just well composed bianchi's a monster I mean, this guy literally came out of nowhere on Seven Soldiers' Shining Night. And I looked through that first issue and I said, this man's going to be a star. He has such an odd style, yet it's one of those ways of representing things that once you see it, it sticks with you. Well,
3: he's uh, yeah. doing um, some stuff. He's, he's doing Batman, like the covers of The covers of Detective, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
4: Those are great images, and I—I I, he first came to my notice when uh, he had a very uh, short run on the new relaunched Green Lantern.
2: Right, and and now he's where he belongs at the House of Ideas, and I think this guy is going to skyrocket. He's just amazing. Every line, you know, I see a lot of Alex Nino in his work.
4: No, I can take, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: And you know this cover is reminiscent to uh, that one cover that the Hildebrands did in the uh the, the Wolverine series before right. the, this one I, I forget what issue it was it was a it was a front back cover of wolverine and and Sabretooth going at it again but that, i mean it reminds me of uh of this cover a little bit, especially the background part you know see the,
4: the, the to me the background the way it's shaped it either reminds me of the vessel that our heroes were on going to battle world or super boxers
3: i'm not a big fan of the background simply because if you know you read the the story with us far in the story it doesn't have any bearing
2: on
4: yeah which makes me think it might be the danger room or somewhere where you know you could have you know, just a simulated environment to fight in.
2: yeah it looks good though. but he needed something that was the same on both sides yeah because of the the uh like, it's a diptych. It's, it's two parts. So he needed something. It's color form's fun. Yeah, he needed something to, to repeat across both sides. So, yeah, why not? It works.
3: Diptych. That's why I love Vince, man. That's why? Yeah, I'm going to use that term on my wife tonight. To see, if, see if I can flabbergast her.
2: <laughs> and see, if go-
3: see if the shirt just comes right off. <laughs> you say it.
2: Well, if you go one more, you've got a triptych. It's just one less than a triptych. Diptych so let's move on to the guts now I I think the first part where we're introduced to this anthropomorphic cat or were cat race called the lupine I think this part is very very important and for the life of me I can't say why because it's too early and uh, It's it's too early to tell but if you know if you're familiar with Jeff Loeb's work the guy likes to tinker with reality I mean, if you read his Superman Batman run, especially the you know that last one, he was messing with reality something fierce in there with all the different characters from different times and and universes and stuff plowing through there. So we're introduced to the lupine, and I think it's very very interesting that they're it's very
3: uh, reminiscent of two thousand one Space Odyssey for some reason.
2: I could see that. I could see yeah. But I think symbolically it's going to mean something that these things are ripping apart a saber-toothed tiger and then they eventually consume it. They they devour it. So that probably means something somewhere along the line. We'll find out. And while these guys are ripping apart this saber-toothed tiger, we have this mysterious overseer up on top of the rock ledge up there and he's watching this thing going on and who he is again too early to say but another really symbolic part that may pan out somewhere down the line is you have a dark-skinned dark furred lupine attacking a light-skinned lupine and the dark one wolverine refers to as pup and the light-skinned one he calls blondie and he removes the canine from the saber tooth and pierces the heart of this light-skinned one So, if you peel back some of the obvious layers and you look at it, it could very well be Wolverine killing Sabretooth with his own something. Uh, You know, symbolically, why does he kill him with the Sabretooth's tooth? And it's a light-skinned lupine, which could very well be symbolic of Sabretooth. You don't know. But I'm thinking, as this this story pans out, it may mean something. Oh, it definitely will. And I'm I'm probably
4: not anywhere in the neighborhood of of close on on what I seem to see
3: in inside
4: comic books these
3: days. But yeah, you could read all kinds of, of stuff. What if
4: what if the saber tooth is a symbol of creed? Wolverine disposes, you know, kills you kill saber tooth, and if you notice where the saber tooth fang, where does it pierce Blondie? Right in the heart. What if what if Blondie and Pup are two sides of Wolverine?
2: Well, yeah, it could be, but I mean, it's he's deliberately blonde, he's deliberately light skinned, like Sabretooth, with the blonde hair, and Wolverine's got the dark hair. And oh, I, I see exactly. I know yeah, you're
3: right. so right. I, see, I, I see, I see Pup, that. I see Pup as Wolverine. I mean, Runt, Pup, you know, that's total Wolverine. Blondie, I'm not. I don't see him as Wolverine as much as I do Sabretooth. Right.
2: I hope uh, it's not Silver Fox.
3: Yeah, that's another uh, possibility, too.
2: Well, it doesn't have breasts, so... <laughs>
3: Blondie, Blondie is a total feminine name. But.
2: Yeah, but it just could be Wolverine being derogatory towards Creed. Yeah. You know, one thing that'll emasculate a man is calling him by a woman's name. Well,
4: there's then and, and there's one way to find out if it is supposed to be Creed, because when we get to Creed, there's uh, something that really jumps out at
2: you. Yeah, right? well, we'll get to that, buddy. Let's just... <laughs> See, see, I didn't pick up on that. and There's a, <laughs> yeah, whole, no. there, there's a whole lot of scary things see, going on that you did. Oh, wait a minute. It's,
4: there's some symbolism right there. Yeah. We, might, we, we don't want to look into my psyche.
2: We'll get there. So,
6: uh, This is Jay Scarzy, Jay Scars on the forums. And these are my reactions to Civil War number seven. I was not disappointed, but I was underwhelmed. I definitely feel like I'm missing part of the story. The character moments were good. Not great, but good. And starting in, I guess, the last, or one of the last front lines, when Sally first confronted Captain America, so when I started to get a little bit of the feeling of this kind of maniac turn, And forgetting about Why he was really doing it And just doing it because he was doing it And Missing out on The people that he was supposed to doing it for Be doing it for rather And so It kind of paid off in Number 7 but Not enough for me Having the, the final moments be the The written letter between Reed and Sue Was Completely uneventful for me personally, despite the fact that he was one of the architects. And I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I feel like there's more to it that I've missed and that I'm going to look forward still to reading the conclusions in Frontline 11 and then reading more about it in the initiative because I'm an addict. But I think that it was rushed. There could have been a Civil War number 8 that could have done a little bit more with this. That, of course, would come out in 2010, but that's neither here nor there.
2: As the story progresses, we have Wolverine on the grounds of the mansion, and he knows Sabretooth is there. He knows Sabretooth is in the mansion. And David and I were talking about this, and David had a little bit of a beef with the fact that Wolverine approaches the mansion with his claws popped. And I was thinking about it, and the only reason I could see that he would approach the mansion ready for battle is because he knows Creed is inside. That's the only reason. He can smell them. I mean, the guy probably smelled them even before he touched on the mansion's grounds. But he's a samurai.
4: Why would he unsheath his, his blade? Prior? Well, he did
3: have to use one of the blades to unlock right. the door. So he, right. he walks
4: down with all six out, and either he... He retracts two on one hand, leaving four, or retracts five, leaving one to pick the lock. Again, it's just I, I don't. Aside from it being a neat visual, I just I don't see the need to walk down the hall, walk okay. down the lawn.
2: Okay, and 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 you could be right, but look at the part on the next page when he enters the mansion. His claws are popped, and he is all business because Rogue asks him something flippant like "Forget your key." And he just says, this is between him and me. So he he's dispensing with any kind of pretense. He You know, no pleasantries, nothing. He's coming into the mansion knowing he's going to have a fight. So maybe that's why he walked down the, to the mansion with them popped, because he's ready. He's battle ready. You, you never know. I mean, if Wolverine can smell Creed, Creed could smell Wolverine. Sure. So maybe he'll come flying through the window even before he gets to the door. So Wolverine's ready. I don't know. That's the way I saw it. You know, it's a minor thing, but I look at this page, and the only thing that kills me about this art, Wolverine would not wear chrome shoulder pads. I don't care how good it looks. You don't think? No, he's a character that prides himself on stealth, on being on invisible. Stealth who
4: walks out with six blades? Okay, all right.
2: Where
3: did that come well, from? The,
2: anyway, the, the blades don't make any noise. <laughs> you know, he's he's just he's ready, man. He's ready to tear off Sabretooth's head. All right. I don't know. It, it just it, that, that those things on his arms, on his shoulders, must be super reflective, and you can see that they are. So if you're trying to hide in the shadows, and you got something super reflective on, I'm, I'm sure sh- you know. I'm sure I, you're going to be casting. I think
3: that's that. That's I mean, he, he's wearing yellow for Pete's sake. Chrome <laughs> shoulder blades, you know, notwithstanding.
2: Yeah. And that's another thing. Why the hell does he wear yellow? Get back to the brown.
3: Actually, if you read the end of this book, you. He kind of makes excuses for that, which I thought was real cool. We'll get into
2: that. Yeah. And so he enters the mansion and blows off Rogue and confronts Creed. And then we get to the panel David was talking about on the lower... um,
4: With with Creed in his package?
2: Well, he is watching the Spice Channel. Yeah, God. you know, maybe he's self-lubricating. I don't know. <laughs> well it is.
4: It is a direct it, it is a parental advisory book, so, you know, I guess maybe that has to do with it.
2: And where do you see that? I was wondering, where's parental advisory on this thing? Next to the UPC code. Oh, yes it is. There you go. You're yeah, right. This
3: is for the the gore, the the violence. Yeah. And, and the package. The and there's <laughs> there's
2: there's nipples in it too as we'll see later. Did you guys catch the nipples? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Wolverine and Sabretooth throw down, and it's a, it's a really magnificent fight. Uh, Bianchi's art is so fluid, uh, and his panel layouts are just, uh, you can't help but be drawn into this battle.
3: He draws some pretty massive um, frames. Yeah. I really like that.
2: Yes, he does. And, and another thing I like about his art is he draws Creed's eyes completely black or b- blood red. And, and you know if what they say is true that the eyes are the window to the soul then Creed's got a very very dark soul indeed. Indeed. Yes. So Wolverine and Sabretooth throw down and I just love this double page spread. It's so organic and the the woods are just gorgeous.
4: And I mean, I, I love how you can see the fact that they're they're wearing clothes. These there's material that they're wearing. It's not like it's not like they have Costume spray painted on their body. Right. You know, I mean, he, the art is really, really well done.
2: Oh, yeah. I, my only complaint about this page, if, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a complaint, it would be a slight tweak, is that the background is a little too. Lively as far as the colors yeah. go, it fights okay. with the foreground a little bit.
3: Is this the page where Wolverine is hopping out the window? No, this is the next, uh, the next one.
2: The next page where Wolverine, well, where Creed says, Let's finish this expletive. And I can that, just Wolverine imagine. Wolverine
4: shouts out, Love to. I don't know if I'd <laughs> scream at they're in a fight.
2: But they continue to throw down, and the story really takes a, a weird turn when Creed snaps Wolverine's neck, which. Forces him into a, a memory of his days in Canada with Silver Fox.
3: Blacks out.
2: Yeah.
4: And I, I don't think I've seen Silver Fox since the Rucker Robertson run. Uh, I
3: forgot about this, Silver uh, Fox. Yeah.
2: And she is.
3: Indeed. I thought it was real cool how he uh, how he passed out. I mean, the effects she used
2: mm-hmm.
4: for that. Oh, yeah. And then going into the mountains. Yeah.
3: yeah that was a pretty neat effect.
4: So he. I, I, I like his image of Logan after he gets hit with the snowball and he turns around. I like that look.
3: I, that's a look you rarely see, isn't it? He's smiling. He's, he's sitting here
4: smiling. It's I happening. guess
3: as clean clean shaven as he's going to be. <laughs> yeah.
4: i surprised he doesn't have any hair
3: on his back. He's definitely not Italian. He's, he's got hair on his back on the next page as he's getting it on.
2: That's right. And as he's getting it on, he knows Creed is there. So yeah. our buddy Logan screwed up big time because... Creed eventually comes back to the cabin and slaughters Silver Fox, yes. le- leaving a nice little message in blood on the wall for Logan. so you could argue that Logan's a little bit responsible for her death. if he acted when he knew he was there she may yeah. she may not be dead, so yeah. he's got a little bit of guilt carrying that around and there on the next page. Which is a two-page spread. We see the nips. The nipples, yes. Yeah,
4: Wolverine's nipples at the bottom. Don't tell me that Silver Fox's nipples are up there on the page before she was wearing a bra. Well, he
2: she's took them off. Still wearing
4: all. the bra, yeah. He
2: took. He says she says, "I want to remember you dead and naked." Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and and here's my loved one who just got slaughtered. I'm gonna let me not cover her. I'm gonna parade through the streets with her naked. You know, yes,
7: yeah. she's still yeah. wearing a bra.
2: So, but uh, another beautifully. Rendered page. Oh, the blood splatter on yeah. the. And, and you could just feel the motion on this thing. They're flying yeah. through the window and they crunching up against a, a log, and Wolverine's down and out. And uncharacteristically, Sabretooth recites something in Latin. That,
3: Quid sum eris.
2: Right, which means.
3: I am what you will be. I am there what we go. Right,
2: I am what you will be. Which is kind of cryptic because a long time ago that. That's one of those lines that used to appear on Tombstones. A little, oh. little bit of sardonic humor from the grave. You know, buck up, champ, because you're going to be lying next to me inevitably. So, back to the present, Wolverine is uh, healing, and you can see his spinal column sticking out the back of his neck.
3: I didn't like nice that. Touch. No? No, I thought, I mean, he's not standing. Or granted, he's got to heal up, you know, if he's got his spine sticking out the back of his neck. I thought that was a, little, a bit much. Out
4: of all the blood and everything, that's what you, uh, it,
2: that, that you didn't like? That's pretty gruesome, but, I mean, it works for me. And since this, the title of this arc is called Evolution and I Am What You Will Be, maybe the Weapon X program was dabbling in some kind of extended genetics thing where their test subjects would somehow evolve over time. Maybe there's a trigger Based, or devolve or yeah or evolve or devolve right based <laughs> based on some kind of external stimuli so whatever that means there's really not enough information in this issue to tell but it's really really interesting to guess i mean what could sabertooth possibly mean in in terms of humanity Sabretooth is a little bit lower on the evolutionary scale than than wolverine wouldn't you say
3: yeah yeah which would denote that uh, Wolverine's going to devolve. I think this is how I, and right when I read it, I was thinking, all right, you know, Wolverine is God. How old is he? Hundreds of years old. Yeah. And Sabretooth's pretty old himself. So you think that how how long can Wolverine Logan keep up this this murderous, you know, violent lifestyle without just you know becoming the cynical, murderous? Uh, Rampage and Loon, you know.
2: Well, if you read the Guggenheim arc, he can do that for a long, long time to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. And I really like the way that Jeff Loeb pulls in House of M, Decimation, and the 198. And I mean, in, in the in the first couple pages, Wolverine's talking about his memories coming back, which is House of M. Then he talks about how there isn't much of us left, Homo Superior, that's a joke, which brings in the whole Decimation and and 198. and It's really neat that this thing is is pulling in a bunch of continuity like that.
4: And I probably would have caught that if, if I had read 198, Decimation, or House of M.
2: There you go. And in terms of House of M, you haven't missed much. All that happened was Wolverine gained a whole bunch of memories at the end, but they've been real... What's he still he? doesn't
3: have um, all all the answers, though. You know, right? no, right. no, and, he doesn't. And, and whatever memories he
4: has have led to more questions,
2: right? But they've been real finicky in releasing which ones he has retained. So it, again, it's the old which is great. It's the I old mean, staple. You know, let's let's tease him into waiting for Wolverine's origin.
4: Well, that was that was his gimmick for the longest time. Right, that he was he was mysterious. You know, you didn't know if he, you know, it it. it Took him years to finally write in the fact that well, if he heals, if he can heal quickly, then maybe that also means he ages slowly. That's not something that that Wayne or Claremont came up with almost off the bat. It, that, that was something that Claremont came up with a long, long time later.
2: Right. And as as the story closes, they're getting into the thick of it and. We're assuming that Wolverine pops his claws through Sabretooth's head, something that he's done before, uh, during the Chuck Dixon, I believe it was Chuck Dixon, uh, Mark Silvestri issue. Wolverine pops his claws right through Sabretooth's brain, and Creed survives. So he should know that it's not going to hurt him, well, in in the long term. That, that led to the whole Sabretooth acting out of a character and a seemingly uh docile and he joined X-Force and Boom Boom was his little sidekick. Remember those days?
3: Well, I got a question uh simply because I'm not familiar with why is uh Creed at uh, the mansion anyway?
4: He's a member of X-Men. In he's the m- on the he's on the team with the adjective list, X-Men, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mike can Mike, can Mike Carey's run. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I he I didn't. He was being, well, I won't spill the beans because you should read it. It's really good. But he was, there was this group of entities, let's just put it that way, that was chasing Creed, and they're powerful enough to scare him. So he saw, he sought out the X-Men for some kind of sanctuary, like, you know, help me. These guys are going to freaking rip me apart.
3: Um, I'm totally, I'm, I did not know. Should I just go ahead and leave now cuz I kind of didn't even know that.
2: That's okay. No, not everybody read <laughs> <laughs> you know you you, you can't my head, my head in shame. You know, you can't read every book. If you started spouting off Black Panther recent events, I wouldn't know what the hell you're talking about either. So Creed is a member of the X-Men, and he pretty much benefited the team as far as Mike Carey's run goes. And like I said, get that. It's really good. At the end of this first part of this issue, we don't know what's going on, and I, for one, cannot wait till the next issue.
4: I yeah, just man. really hope no the next issue. I'm I'm really looking forward to getting it in my next shipment. I, I'm just really hoping that this fight does not go on for as long as it takes Batman to drive Robin
2: to the Batcave. Well, <laughs> as as long sounds as
3: like the fight's wrapping up right here.
2: Oh, I don't. And I don't after that last. I mean, sniff, we we I got
3: doubted. a heart getting ripped out. We got. You know, claws through the brain. Yeah, but,
4: I mean, you know, how how much damage can this really do to two people that can heal quickly?
3: Well, True.
2: if Loeb peppers the fight with backstory, like we did, like we got in this issue with the Lupine and the Silver Fox segment, then I don't think it's going to be all that bad because, obviously, it's uh, a story that's going to move at a quick pace because they're both very, very fast very agile fighter so how long could this fight have lasted in in this issue maybe five minutes at the most maybe you know maybe 10 you know so in terms of story if even if they do fight for four issues it it, it probably is going to go by in a in a heartbeat in terms of real time it's it's I, i wouldn't think it's going to be something along the lines of moon Knight. Yeah. Thank you. See, I I got your back. I appreciate it. I I appreciate. Got your back, buddy. Anybody have anything else to say about the main story in this issue? I I liked it. It was uh, it was definitely different
4: than what uh, than what we were getting with with the Guggenheim issues, with the uh, with with the two issue with um, with forty nine, with Wolverine fighting Santa, Um, and even before that, you had Biller. You had. You had uh, Rucka I mean, it's definitely. It's still, you could tell it's a Wolverine tale, but it's it's, Lobes taking it in a different direction, which I like. It's it's. I'm on board. Do
3: you I think mean, um the the objectives of of kind of what Loeb's doing with this story is, kind of furthering uh, Wolverine's past or you know explaining s- some stuff? Uh, I, the whole lupine thing has got me flipped. I mean, I don't even know what's going on with that. Yeah, I
2: that's my favorite part of this issue. I love a mystery, and I love a mystery that involves symbolism. And I think that's what Loeb's doing there. I'm thinking he's telling a story with those pages. He's going to continue to do it, obviously, that we're going to get a real insight into what really makes Wolverine tick.
3: I think Wolverine and Creed. I mean, it looks like there's a lot of Creed in in the lupine uh, uh, panels as well. Yes,
2: Yep. you're right. Especially in the one page where Wolverine says, you know, you're not my father, you're not my brother, you're not my clone. Why can't I get rid of you? <laughs> Maybe they're from the same tribe, so to speak. Maybe Wolverine and Creed weren't really human at all. Maybe they were these creatures that were f- forcibly evolved, rapidly evolved into pseudo-human beings. Maybe they look like human beings. I mean, these, these lupine guys are anthropomorphic. They, for all intents and purposes, if they didn't look so cat-like, they would be human-esque kind of creatures. So maybe somebody tinkered with these beings and, and evolved them to a point where they would pass for humans and, and aren't really. But that's just my guess. I don't know. It's like it's we don't have enough to Still work. Still early. But, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But it, in my opinion, Guggenheim ramped up the quality factor on the Wolverine title, and it looks to me like Loeb is going to continue that. It doesn't look like he's going to lose any momentum.
4: And it and it looks like it's a story that can stand on its own. At least, I mean, Guggenheim's story. As we mentioned, it, it works. It can be a standalone tale. It just has a Civil War backdrop. Wolverine could have been hunting Nitro for any number of reasons. It just happened to kick off the Civil War event. So it, it there were definite ties in, tie-ins to Civil War in Vendetta. But I think this is a story that can definitely stand on its own. It's too early to tell about it being a definitive Wolverine story. It, it's got the makings of it. Sure. But... Um, but you know, it, it's it's something that's just it. It looks like it's in its own little pocket, and it'll take off
2: in a direction.
4: And again, I'm I'm along for the ride.
2: Yeah, it should prove very interesting. Yes. All right, let's move along and tackle this second story, which was again written by Jeff Loeb, pencils by Transplanted illustrator Ed McGinnis. Once again, another illustrator back where he belongs. Inks by Dexter Vines, great, fantastic inks by Dexter Vines, Indeed. and colors by Dave McCaig. In essence, all this story is, is a little uh, nod to Len Wein and Herb Trimpey's Incredible Hulk 181. But Loeb puts his little spin on it, like, as I said before, he likes to tinker with reality like he did on With a Vengeance and the Superman-Batman run, and the fight culminates with a little bit of a reality shift as the old yellow and blue Wolverine from the early days somehow transforms into the ultimate, ultimate. Wolverine, yeah, yeah, and gets ripped in half, causing Wolverine to whoa, you know what the hell was that so can you can look at this as you know maybe Wolverine's memories are overlapping maybe uh something's out of shift, or it could just be loeb just having fun i i, I I'd
3: like to th- I'd like to think that he's not trying to go anywhere story wise with doing right. something like it's that
2: just yeah, that. just having fun
3: yeah,
2: and you know i I can't say this about many artists, but i I would take a bullet for ed McGinnis i really, <laughs> uh, his, his his hulk is just. Oh man, it's every Hulk is
4: is is well, big. Shit, it's, it was incredible. It, yeah,
2: it's, it is just I,
4: I'm not a big fan of his his chunky style. Yeah, but here he, I mean, and he, it's not like he's just been doing comics for the past couple of years. I mean, he's been around for a while. He worked yeah. on Deadpool. He worked on Justice League. He's done a lot, and you know you don't give you don't give Superman to somebody that. Uh, that you just don't think can run with the ball. So right. I mean, he's been around and he's 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 got the chops. He showed me something in this that I have not seen, and I have those those uh, JLA classified issues that he did with Grant Morrison. The art in this hundreds of times better than what I saw in that. And he does a great he does a really nice Batman. But I think between the Wolverine and the Hulk in this little
2: story, is great. Yeah, very cinematic. Oh
3: and yeah, I like yeah. I like the. Uh the the way he rendered the the old Wolverine costume,
2: the way he extended the whiskers across yeah. across the the uh, cheekbones and down the sides, that was really cool.
8: Hi guys, this is Chris Chavez, Equinox from the forums, and this is a little net message regarding Civil War number seven. Um, gosh, you know, I'm not going to get all crazy like I did with. Um, uh, you've got Civil War The Return because, frankly, I'm not as, you know, kind of ticked off about this as I was with that one. Um, if anything else, I guess I'm I'm just disappointed, you know, just kind of let down by it. Um, I probably saw it coming. I mean, you know, you've got a seven-issue series, and with issue six, you've got this big, climactic thing going on. I think everything's going to kind of get resolved or, you know, wrapped up in a neat and Tidy Bow. Uh, you know, it's probably, unfortunately, just asking for a little bit too much. Um, but, gosh, I, I don't know. You know, maybe there was some grand plan, and I don't know, you know, the whole ending was Joss Whedon's uh, baby or what have you. Uh, I I just didn't feel like it really delivered. Um, I mean, there's other books that were regular books and even a, you know, notable... Maxi series that were out this week that I thought were better. Uh, Overall, I I just don't think that this, you know, Civil War number seven, as far as tying up, well, I don't even know if it should tie up the whole Civil War plotline into one neat package. You know, you've got continuing plotlines and threads that you can play out over, you know, the rest of the Marvel Universe books. But as a series, I have to say that unfortunately, Civil War was not wonderful for me. Yes, and unfortunately, has not earned that title. Um, gosh, I, I would probably, you know, if the story continued for another five issues, if they said, oh, psych, it's a 12-issue Maxi Series, I'd probably be inclined to pick it up just because I would hope they would tie things up or, or have a, a, a more coherent ending to the story. It it just seemed to be, you know, too much whimper, not enough bang at the very end. Um You know, everybody's entitled to their opinions. That's mine on it. Um, I enjoyed the other issues up to it. It's just this one just left me feeling empty. Um, Anyway, have a great one, guys. I'm looking forward to the show. Looking forward to seeing and hearing everybody's uh, feedback from it on the forums, uh, you know, voicemail, um, what have you. Have a great one.
2: I understood what Dave McCague was trying to do with the uh the dot pattern in this and a lot of panels, it really works, but after a while, man, that murray pattern was getting I on my nerves. I,
4: I don't I don't see
3: it did work well I think with the um like this paper. Yeah with the,
4: with the big big larger than life images. It it worked it worked back then because it was subtle. Because it's what they had and it's all they had to work with. Here, you're being hit over the head with it. Here, you, you can see
2: that it's standing
3: out. and that's You, you almost want to see it without it, you know? Yeah, right, yeah you almost want so to see it in black and white.
2: But it does separate the time periods very well because you, you have the dot pattern up until the ultimate wolf, uh, Wolverine kicks in, and then there's no dot pattern; it's all slick. and oh, so
4: great! So like the last three pages. Yeah,
2: so uh, it does separate the eras really nicely, but and and as a, it was a means to an end, but it's it's really it, distracting in some panels. It's giving me a headache. Yeah, I
3: almost kind of wish. Well, you I guess you couldn't do it because you know you got to have a Green Hulk and you got to have a yellow. And blue Wolverine, but if they used um, sepia or, or uh, you know like antique browns or something to to, to do like a right. remembrance,
2: like a days gone by type thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, you're right. That would have been cool, but but um, you would
3: have lost the greens and the yellows.
2: Right, and a moire pattern occurs when the printer screens are out of alignment, and if your your screens were out of alignment this much, you would see color I mean the, the, the screens would shift where you would see color outside of the black lines. Like on the one panel where Wolverine says, I'm not your puny little man Hulk I'm the Wolverine and he's got his his hand out. If you look at the glove, there'd be blue way above the line that holds the the glove in, you know? So when, when your plates shift, your color spreads beyond the parts where it's supposed to be. So there's none of that, which wouldn't have been really cool if they did that. I mean, it would have looked like the old days right. when, when the plates shifted. But other than that, yeah, it's, it was kind of neat, but really, really distracting in some spots. And I well,
4: also thought that Wolverine could only extract his claws. They can only be unsheathed when he's making a fist.
2: When I,
4: that, I think, is in the handbook. That, I... Because, I, really, the only time he uses it is when he makes... It, like, he can't... Because of the way the bones are. Right. On, on the yeah. forearm.
2: Well, time-wise, he, he could have maybe popped them and then opened his hand. You know what I mean? Like, he sees...
4: there's a lot... There are a few different scenes where he's got his... Um, I even,
3: know what you're talking panel, about.
4: There's the- Even at the bottom panel, where, where he's going after the Hulk, it's like he, he's got... He's opening up his fist.
3: They look like paws there, don't they, David? They're they just, do. They're they, real they, short.
4: They, they really do. And then most other times, he's got a fist when he's got the claws out. I mean, I know it's like artistic license, and, you know, it's one of those things. But even even when the Hulk's about to pick up his leg, before he rips him in half, he's he's, he's got his hands open and the claws out. But, you know, like, like like you were saying, that obviously this this can be like a dream sequence, and it's a little out there, so maybe that's What did
3: you guys think of... Um Wolverine's uh dialogue, yeah we're um it's kind of like um oh alpha flight where they they told him what to say or whatever yeah. <laughs> he's real cheese, real campy, <laughs>
2: yeah, somebody's always putting words in my mouth, yeah uh-huh, that could be Loeb just playing around with you know the mechanics of comics, having a character that knows he's a comic book character, and
3: yeah he's explaining away all of. The making excuses, as it right?
2: It, all in all, I, I love the last story. I think the the power and just the f- ferocity, ferocity, ferocity. Just the the uh, the menacing nature of the Hulk. I mean, would you want to fight something like that? Especially it has when, to be nuts. yeah, especially when you're a little runt. And he, <laughs> I mean, he looks like he could crack the world in half. His arms are freaking huge. Just gorgeous and Dexter Vines did a magnificent job on the inks yeah really to, nice I can't wait
4: to see this as an essential story I'd love to see this in black going. No
2: just great stuff and this is a must-buy I think this whole issue was just fantastic I I've I've read a couple criticisms here and there and I think they're all unfounded I think this is a really nice start in terms of a uh, 50th issue I think it's pretty fitting because you get a little bit of the old, a little bit of the new, a couple mysteries, beautiful art. What more do you want?
3: Yeah, this is the first comic I've bought with um, Bianchi's uh, work, and that whole washed inks thing, man, that's I can't ink as it is. I mean, inking is a is like trying to tame a stallion. I just I don't have the hand for it, and to see any variation of the, you know, the standard tight inks is is something I really love and and try to try to look at
2: you're you're inking your work you just don't know it
3: well I'm I'm trying to to ink it as I can these damn hands I can get them to do you know yeah these accidents these these claws
2: yeah I think you're a little (laughs) I think you're a little bit too hard on yourself but that's that's neither here nor there well
3: when you told my wife that uh, my stuff was subtractive I mean when you told me that my stuff was subtractive I, w- I ran to my wife and told her and She kissed me on the cheek
2: for it Well it is <laughs> you, 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 you lay down the heavy blocks and then you take away That's, right, that's right. a cool way to do it You don't see too much of that That's why I think you should stick with that Because uh, you you want to develop a style that is pretty unique And I think you're on your way buddy you so, all in all, let's give this sucker a vote because everybody likes to put a number on something. In terms of, uh, let's grade it. Let's say that we're, Mr. Loeb is, and company have submitted this for our approval and we're going to judge him. I would give this issue um, a 92.
4: Oh, I was looking at like 1 through 5. You want to actually give yeah, it a 6?
2: Geez, 92? Well, no. I'm, I'm on a 100 a percentile scale. I know, I know. Yeah. Go ahead,
3: Brax. 36. <laughs> no, okay. I give it a uh, like a. All right, let me let me really think about this. All right, I'm gonna give it a probably an eighty-seven.
2: Okay, that's good. And the only reason why I wouldn't give it a hundred is because of uh, that moire pattern in the in the last story. That was that's just one
4: thing. That's see, and and I don't even think I don't
2: the the two detracting
4: things have to do with the art. One is the coloring on the second story, and the other one is my little nitpicking about Wolverine and his claws. The but Can I really pick on anything about the writing, though? I don't. what? What were you gonna say?
2: No, I was, <laughs> I was gonna say, but that's completely.
4: It's still in the comic book. It's still in the comic book I bought.
2: Okay, I will give you that.
3: What? What? What was the deal? You don't. He can't go after the the writing.
2: No, 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 no. no. I mean, who? He, I, I'm gonna complain
4: about Wolverine having his claws out as <laughs> he's walking down the great lawn. <laughs> and Vince Wasel, I try to defend that, but it's like it's hard. It's hard. Look, for me to you look at to...
3: that like like he, he's got he's got a heart on, man. He has got his claws. He's ready to go. That's <laughs> how I look at that.
4: But it's Wolverine, I have oh. yet to see him walk into... A, you know, he doesn't.
3: If there's when, when anybody he... <laughs> in this world that can get Wolverine's claws unsheathed, who is that person, David? Creed, Jubilee, man. I hope.
2: Oh, uh, gee, God. I was gonna oh. say Jubilee. That's what
4: I said. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Jubilee, I hope but as far as the writing, I really can't complain too much about it. I as it stands right now, it's it's high eighties.
2: Okay. It's with me. There you go. Yeah. Well we all agree then, basically. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely
3: yeah. it's it's a great it's a great read. It's a great yeah, book. Yeah, it's a great it's a great book. I'm glad I read it tonight. It's, I wouldn't it's have picked this up.
4: Creed's package alone probably gets an A. So, oh man. <laughs>
3: hey, you you know what the best uh, scene I thought, and I wanted to bring this up when I read it, was the the scene, the way the the page is laid out, where you have Wolverine's claw, like uh, unsheathed, and you have Creed below, mm-hmm. like a partial view of his face. Yeah, that is that is a a, a really good good scene. I felt like
2: yep. If you look at the fight scene, the panels almost look like a shattered piece of glass. The way they're just... Ha- yeah, there's just
4: a lot of white space. Yeah,
2: the way they're just haphazard. Oh, I don't want to say haphazardly because a lot of uh, planning went into this. But it, they do look like something is, is shattering or, or, or coming apart. So adding more um, mystery to it and reinforcing the whole, there's a, something's falling apart here, man. Something's not right. So, yeah, excellent job. I loved it. Fantastic. There you the go. Murky,
3: the murky colors uh, are really good with, I guess, you know, it's all at night and everything.
2: And Bianchi draws like someone from the Italian Renaissance. He has such a beautiful, beautiful way of rendering the human form. Just amazing. Way too classy for comic books, but I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll just pick it up. Yeah. Gotta go get it. Very good. All right. Hey, looks like we uh, put another one to bed braxton god thank you for being here you were astounding as usual and uh,
3: i appreciate it i i try to astound
2: and for anybody who has not <laughs> checked out braxton's art jump on our forum at bullpen bulletins com. in the romita's raiders section you can see braxton's amazing work like i said before the guy is untrained never took a class in art and i dumped about ooh many thousands of dollars in art school and i'll tell you he's got chops that i wish i had
3: well i appreciate that vince i yeah. really do them. it's the but truth it's, yeah it's it's still a i still got a long way to go and i appreciate that that's nice
2: hey me speak em truth you're sweet you're that's sweet. right <laughs> i am i am sweet and uh since this is the last <laughs> shut up since, <laughs> since since this is our our it's final Final podcast before the New York City Comic Con. If you're in the area, February 23rd to the 25th, drop by and see us. Me- we'll
4: be at Table A, 154.
2: Yes, sandwiched between the Pop Cult Online's Rick Gordon and our buddies over at Around Comics. Yeah. I don't, I don't care what anybody says. We have the best location in that whole group of podcasts. Hell's yeah! You better believe it, brother. So drop on by and see us, and you know any anybody who comes to see us that listens to the show can come back behind the booth and sit there with us and greet everybody and just be one of the one of the buddies. How about that?
3: Since you're extending that offer, I might just have to drive up.
2: There you go. Fly up
3: to be a buddy. <laughs> I dare you.
2: So for Vince B and David Price and
3: guest Braxton I guess
2: we thank you for being here and join us next week for another exciting episode when I'm sure you're going to be here a lot of stuff from the New York City Comic Con thanks for being here
7: See bye bye